Hello and welcome to the Orient Express, a podcast focusing on Middle Eastern history of the 20th and 21st century. My name is William Stricek, and I'm a former graduate of politics and international relationships who found a long-lasting interest in the Middle East region and its history. I've decided to start this podcast in order to bring more light into the complex and dynamic region of Middle East, since the understanding of the historical development is needed in order to fully grasp the nature of the present-day conflicts, wars and problems in this specific part of the world. Of all the military campaigns undertaken away from the Western Front during the Great War, the Gallipoli operations are the most famous and well-remembered today. They parallel the battles of Verdun, the Somme and Ypres in their collective imprint in modern historical memory. For the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps troops involved, the campaign has become a foundational myth of modern nation-building. It has come to symbolize the rise of a national consciousness in both countries and the memory and bravery of those who took part in it. For the Ottoman, the operations at Dardanelles hold equal historical importance, as the Ottoman military fought with bravery and with distinction and inflicted a resounding reverse on the Allied armies. No less significantly, Mustafa Kemal emerged from relative obscurity to begin his transition into the father of the Turkish nation. For the British, who made up the majority of the invading forces, there is no heroic mythologizing to hide what was a protracted operational fiasco. Had Winston Churchill not achieved greatness between 1940 and 1945, he would probably be remembered today with anger as the instigator and architect of military failure. In today's episode, we are going to look upon the infamous Gallipoli campaign. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. Pressure to open up a new front in the Mediterranean had been building up since the Ottoman entry into the Great War in November 1914. It was magnified by the solidifying stalemate on the Western Front as the initial battlefield fluidity gave way to the lines of trenches that stretched from the English Channel to the Swiss border. Led by Churchill, pressure grew for a way of overcoming the bloody stases and lengthening lists of casualties on the Western Front. Moreover, the need to open up the Dardanelles to Russian shipping and the Tsarist regime's long-standing interest in the city of Istanbul added a potent Russian dimension to the campaign. For these reasons, the battles to gain control of the Gallipoli Peninsula drew in a wide array of actors with different visions for the regional reordering. Gallipoli represented the intersection of Russian expansionist objectives in the Middle East with British attempts to construct a wartime alliance of convenience against the Ottoman Empire. During the Crimean War six decades earlier, the fundamentally different Russian and British visions for the future of the Ottoman Empire and the city of Istanbul were an incentive for war. Russia's long-held desire to control Istanbul resonated with its pan-Slavic ambitions and the importance of the city for the Russian Orthodox Church. Less evocative, but more materially important, the narrow strait of the Dardanelles was also a choke point through which all seaborne trade entering Russia's ports on the Black Sea had to pass. For the British part, policy making towards the Ottoman Empire combined respect for its territorial integrity intermixed with awareness of its growing weaknesses. The possibility of Ottoman fragmentation took an important strategic consideration in light of its provinces along the vital sea route to India and the Arabian Peninsula. Officials thus viewed an potential breakup of the empire with deep misgivings. 
The signing of the 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention blunted the competitive rivalry that existed between London and Moscow in Central Asia and placed Germany in the place of a potential conspirational and dangerous power due to its growing friendship with the Ottomans. On October 1, 1914, the Ottomans closed the Dardanelles to British and Allied shipping. This wiped out more than half of Russia's entire export trade and exposed Britain's weaknesses to the issue of important food supplies. Now, with all wheat imports from Russia ended, Britain's initial non-active policy began to transform. The actual trigger for the outbreak of war came when the Ottoman Navy launched preemptive naval strikes targeting the Russian Black Sea ports of Odessa, Sevastopol, Yalta, Novorossiysk and Feodosia on 29th of October. Britain severed diplomatic relations with the Ottomans the next day and declared war on 5th of November, three days after the Russian declaration of war with Istanbul. Notably for the campaign that followed, immediately prior to the declaration of war, the Royal Navy had undertaken a preliminary and speculative bombardment of the Ottoman fortifications at the Dardanelles. Two British battlecruisers and two French battleships conducted a short bombardment that lasted approximately 20 minutes, damaging one Ottoman fort at the tip of the Gallipoli Peninsula, east of Cape Helles, killing some 86 Ottomans and around 40 German soldiers. The declaration of war with the Ottoman Empire removed the geopolitical restrictions that had held back British policy formulations in the Middle East. Winston Churchill, the combative First Lord of Admiralty, anxious to deploy and maximize the dominance available to the world's greatest maritime power, emerged as the leading advocate of the decisive use of British superiority on the peripheral front rather than sending additional troops to the Western Front. In the immediate aftermath of the Ottomans' entry into the war, Churchill began to develop an audacious naval plan to force a passage through the Strait of Dardanelles as a prelude to laying anchor off the shore of Istanbul. This, he hoped, would compel the Ottomans to sue for peace and would open up the Straits as a supply route from the Allies to Russia. Churchill additionally shared the view of many British officials that Ottoman military capabilities had been severely weakened by the two Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1914, as well as the depictive results of the 3rd of November bombardment of the forts. The idea for a naval assault on the Dardanelles was first put forward to the British War Council by Churchill on 13th of January 1915. His advocacy of the Dardanelles Front won the support of influential members of the British government, such as Lord Kitchener or David Lloyd George, and the War Council mandated the Royal Navy to prepare for a naval expedition in February to bombard and take the Gallipoli Peninsula with Istanbul as its objective. Yet, as the plan moved towards becoming operational, it suffered from a mismatch between aims and objectives from the beginning. A number of key questions notably remained unresolved right up to the commencement of operations on 19th of February 1915. Could a naval operation by itself force its way through the network of onshore fortifications and defenses that protected the strait? How indeed could ships take a heavily fortified land-based target? Kitchener felt that the Ottoman garrison on the Gallipoli Peninsula would flee or surrender without requiring the landing of British forces. But was this likely? If the force succeeded in pushing through the straits, would its presence at Istanbul precipitate an Ottoman withdrawal from the war given the substantial military direction and assistance rendered by its German military missions? And if it did not, 
Good military planners in London find sufficient troops and draw up an operational plan quickly enough to regain the initiative without sacrificing the element of surprise in this campaign. The initial decision to utilize naval force through a combination of minesweepers, submarines and battleships alone began to unravel almost immediately. Early in February 1915, the British commanders decided that an infantry division would after all be needed in addition to the small contingents of Royal Marines. One final regular division remained available, the 29th Division. It was dispatched to Egypt, where it joined the infantry forces that had been arriving from Australia and New Zealand for onward transit to the war zones in Europe, and now the Dardanelles. Thus, the Australian and New Zealand soldiers undergoing training in Egypt would group into the Australian 1st Division. Together, they made up the now legendary Anzac Corps. It was joined by the Royal Naval Division and a French Infantry Division with a mission to keep a close watch on British operations in the Middle East. Incidentally, the British lead role in the Dardanelles campaign actually contravened an understanding reached on 6th of August 1914 between the sometimes wary allies over the demarcation of naval responsibilities in the theatres of war. This had stipulated that the British Navy would direct naval operations in the Atlantic at the North Sea, while the French would take responsibility for the Mediterranean. As such, the French Navy did not react well when presented by what they saw as a British initiative in a form of a detailed operational plan. Nevertheless, their contribution throughout the campaign was important, and they suffered over 27,000 casualties, yet have been almost entirely written out of the historiography of the campaign. Together, the British and French assembled a naval force, one Dreadnought-class battleship, one battlecruiser, 16 pre-Dreadnought battleships, 20 destroyers and 35 minesweepers. Facing the force at the 1,600-yard-wide passage through the strait was the Ottoman 5th Army under the command of the German general Lehmann von Sanders. The Ottoman force of some 84,000 men was divided into the 3rd and the 15th Corps and consisted of 5 infantry divisions with a 6th in reserve alongside a brigade of cavalry. Importantly, they enjoyed numerical strength against the 75,000 invading troops and had the great advantage of holding the high ground, overlooking all potential landing points. In addition, the 5th Army's troops were far more resilient and better trained than was acknowledged by the British and prepared a robust system of elevated field fortifications and lines of defense around potential landing sites. Hostilities commenced on 19 February 1915, when two British destroyers and two British battleships bombarded the Ottoman forts on the Gallipoli Peninsula. However, this and further engagements later in February and in March made little progress in clearing the Ottoman minefields that had been meticulously laid across the strait. Insufficient minesweepers meant that these could not be cleared in order to allow the larger and more powerful battleships to close in on the fortifications. With the Ottoman minefields largely uncut and the howitzers still largely in place, the stage was set for the major Allied effort to break through the Dardanelles and make its thrust toward Istanbul. On 18th of March, the Anglo-French naval force assembled in three lines of attack. Six British battleships would attack first and would be followed by four French ships with a flotilla of six more British ships acting as a relief force to replace damaged vessels. 
That sunny morning saw the failure of Church's grandiose and overly ambitious scheme as three battleships were sunk and three more critically damaged. Heavy Ottoman shelling of the minesweepers meant the minefields could not be cut, while a fresh late stretch of mines went fatally undetected. One French warship, the Bouvet, struck a mine while attempting to withdraw after being hit by a heavy shell. This deadly combination caused it to sink in little more than three minutes with the loss of 639 lives, leaving only 66 survivors. The French flagship boat, the Sofran, was also hit by a heavy shell that caused heavy fatalities in a scene evocatively described by Rear Admiral Emile Goupré. The scene was tragically macabre. The image of desolation. The flames spared nothing. As for our young man, a few minutes ago, so alert, so self-confident, all now lying dead on the bare deck, blackened burnt skeletons, twisted in all directions, no trace of any clothing, the fire having devoured all. By the end of the day, the plan to force the Dardanelles lay in taters, and the operational vision for the campaign needed to be recast. It was agreed that the Royal Navy should only resume its action after the infantry had seized control of the Kilid Bakr Plateau on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Plans were therefore hurriedly drawn up for a landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula itself. However, they had to await the actual arrival of troops reinforcements from Britain. This gave the Ottomans much needed time to regroup and reorganize their defenses at the potential landing sites, as they too had taken substantial losses in the March fighting. Hamilton's preparations for the landings at Gallipoli were beset by problems. The Anzac Corps was inexperienced and lacked suitable training, yet its objectives were formidable. To make a night landing on a hostile shore, overcome an ill-defined opposition, take control of the high ground surrounding the landing beaches and then push across the peninsula. On 25th of April 1915, Australian and New Zealand forces landed at Anzac Cove, while British and French troops assaulted Cape Hellas. Lacking the element of surprise, they met intense resistance from the Ottoman defenders on the high ground surrounding all the beachheads. At the site of the main landing at 5th Beach at Cape Hellas, the British and Irish troops leading the attack suffered appalling casualties as they were picked off by the Ottoman machine guns and barbed wire. The scale of the slaughter was such that a mere 21 out of the first 200 soldiers who tried to get ashore made it alive. Up the coast at Anzac Cove, the bulk of the Australian and New Zealand forces managed to establish a foothold on the peninsula and advance inland. For a time, the Anzacs appeared to be on the verge of taking the critically important high ground that offered a vantage point over the entire peninsula. However, Kemal responded by personally leading the Ottoman counterattack and famously leading the 57th Infantry Regiment into battle with the cry, I do not expect you to attack, I order you to die. This act of heroism seized the momentum from the attacking forces just as it appeared to hang in the balance. In addition, it laid the foundations for the mythologizing of Atatürk as the great national figure he later became. By the end of the first day of the land attack, the Ottomans had managed to contain the British and Anzac landings to the beachheads and deploy the reserves to reinforce their defensive lines. A separate French attack on the Asian coastline had likewise been contained without meeting any of its objectives. 
Von Sanders also benefited from the arrival of reinforcements, which he was able to send into battle on the second and subsequent days. These fresh troops proved instrumental in halting the waves of attacks from the enemy that was becoming increasingly fatigued and weakened by persistently heavy casualties leading to the successful repellent of three waves of attacks and thus ending the opening phase of the Gallipoli campaign. Both sides then began a process of reorganization and reinforcement that lasted from May through to the resumption of the Allied attacks on 6th of August. As the Allied landings became bogged down and spread over five separate beachheads, it became a complex logistical challenge for Hamilton. This was compounded by the lack of easily available fresh water on the Gallipoli Peninsula as the troops were unable to secure sufficient supplies. Meanwhile, the heavy stream of casualties needing evacuation back to Egypt imposed a further burden on the maritime lines of communication. To counter this growing deployment and an attempt to interdict its vulnerable sea lines, the Germans dispatched a small U-boat squadron to the Dardanelles in late April. They included U-21, one of the most famous and highly decorated U-boats in the Imperial German Navy. Having left Germany on 25th of April, the day of the Anzac landings, it arrived at Cape Helles on 25th of May. In short order, it torpedoed and sank two British battleships, the HMS Triumph that day and the HMS Majestic two days later. The U-boat's arrival did much to alter the balance of power at Cape Helles, as they restricted the activities of Allied battleships in support of the troops on the beach by preying on the tenuous supply chain open to disruption and disaster. Most dramatically of all, some three months later, another German U-boat sank a British transport ferrying troops from Alexandria to Dardanelles, drowning nearly 1,000 men. The stunning success of these attacks led the Admiralty in London to withdraw two of its largest battleships, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Inflexible, to the comparative safety of the North Sea. With conditions on the peninsula beachheads worsening as the heat and the flies spread diseases such as dysentery and diarrhea, and criticism of general headquarters and the logistical arrangements mounting, the deadlock led Hamilton to consider alternative approaches that might unlock this stalemate. As Allied forces were hemmed in both the Anzac Cove and Cape Helles, a new landing was proposed. The offensive was set for 6th of August 1915. The 9th Corps was entrusted with new landings at Suvla Bay, five miles away from the original landing site. To the south, the Anzac forces and the British 13th Division were to attempt to break out from Anzac Cove, seize the high ground and link up with the operations further north. Their joint goal was to seize the Saribar Ridge that ran down the center of the peninsula from north to south. However, they faced a reorganized and considerably reinforced Ottoman 5th Army that now consisted of 16 divisions, all holding the higher ground around the landing zones. The August offensive began on 6th of August with attacks at Cape Helles and Anza Cove prior to the main assault on Suvla Bay. At Cape Helles, three British battalions belonging to the 29th and 42nd divisions mounted what was intended to be a minor diversionary action, but instead turned into a series of bloody battles. Hampered by a shortage of artillery and yet another change of leadership, the British brigades met determined and effective opposition from four Ottoman divisions. 
repeated Ottoman counterattacks between 7th and 9th of August swung the momentum firmly in favor of the defenders, and the fighting continued until 13th of August with heavy casualties on both sides. The second attack at Anzac Cove featured the Australian Forces 1st Infantry Brigade as it sought to break out of its salient by capturing the ridge at Lone Pine. This attack was more successful as the Australians captured the main Ottoman defensive line and held their ground against enemy counters, but crucially, it failed in its broader objective of tying down significant numbers of Ottoman troops away from the main offensive thrust at Suvla Bay. More galling still was the experience of troops from the Wellington Battalion of the New Zealand Brigade belonging to the New Zealand and Australian Division, who briefly broke out of the Anzac sector and reached the summit of the Chunuk Bar Ridge early on the morning of 8th of August. The ridge was exposed to enemy fire and difficult to defend or reinforce, particularly as attempts to capture crucial flanking positions did not succeed. Lehman von Sanders hurriedly appointed Mustafa Kemal to lead the Ottoman counterattack, consisting of three divisions with two more on their way, which he did with a degree of bravery that earned him legendary status within the post-war Turkish Republic, and on the 10th of August he led an overwhelming counterattack that recaptured the most tangible Allied success during the campaign. Over the course of the four-day battle at Anzac Cove, the Anzac Corps suffered extraordinarily high rates of casualties. It lost 12,500 men, fully 33% of its total strength. The 1st Australian Division and the New Zealand and Australian Division between them lost 5,800 men, while the British 13th Division lost 5,500 men alone. Most shockingly, 711 of the 760 men at the Wellington Battalion, who reached the summit of Chunuk Bar at 8th of August, became casualties. In Hart's withering summary of the battle, the planning, the secrecy, the courageous attacks, the heroic resistance, in the end, the attack from Anzac had been for nothing. Yet it left a lasting legacy on both the Ottoman and Anzac sites, as Kemal heroic resistance cemented his rapidly rising position within the Ottoman hierarchy. Meanwhile, the courage and bravery of the thousands of Australians and New Zealanders in the face of overwhelming odds fed into potent national narratives that developed during and after the war and continued to be memorialized and commemorated a century later. Away from these unfolding attacks, the 10th and 11th British Division of the 9th Corps landed at Suvla Bay on the night of 6th to 7th of August 1915. They had a numerical advantage over the three Ottoman battalions opposing them, but the landings were marred by general confusion, mismanagement and muddled objectives. As a result, little progress was made beyond securing the B-Jet, as Ottoman reinforcements arrived on 9th of August and pushed the British forces back. 9th Corps suffered 1,700 casualties on the first day of action alone, and made little attempt to assault the higher ground from which the Ottoman snipers and defenders inflicted such deadly results. The unrelenting failure of the August offensive had a severe impact on the morale of the Allied soldiers at Gallipoli. Their commanders had gambled on one final throw of the dice, but had been let down by the poor quality of leadership they exercised. Although the campaign at the Dardanelles continued for four more months before finally petering out, the failure of the Allied forces to break out of their beachheads in August signaled the end of any lingering hopes of operational or strategic success. 
Yet, admitting defeat and ordering the evacuation of the peninsula was no easy matter, as it became intertwined in the minds of British policymakers with the issues of imperial prestige. Officials in London, Delhi and Cairo all feared for the consequences of British rule where they seemed to have been defeated by an Asiatic enemy. As the fighting at Gallipoli wound down, it coincided with the expansion of the British campaigns elsewhere in the Middle East, in Egypt and Palestine and in Mesopotamia. Uppermost in the minds of British and imperial policymakers was the need to minimize the damage and potential contagion from their setback at the Dardanelles. In part, this was achieved by rigorous censorship and firm and rapid action against potential and actual agitators in Egypt and India. However, it also spurred officials to advocate military actions against the Ottomans in other theaters that might otherwise not have gone ahead. By October, as the gravity of their position at Gallipoli became clear, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, told the cabinet despairingly that at present we are particularly bankrupt of prestige in the East and our position could hardly be worse. This had direct and as it turned out disastrous implications for the British and Indian forces and camped a half bay between Basra and Baghdad in Mesopotamia. On 21st of October, the Secretary of State for India, Sir Austin Chamberlain, called for a striking success in the East to offset the debacle at Gallipoli, setting in motion the hastily ill-prepared and ultimately catastrophic attempt to capture Baghdad in November 1915. On the peninsula itself, the change in the seasons caused new problems as the searing summer heat gave way to bitterly cold winter weather. While the politicians and the generals discussed how and when to wind down the campaign, localized fighting continued throughout the autumn. Moreover, the Ottomans' control of the high ground, ranging each of the Allied beachheads, resulted in a steady stream of casualties from sniper fire. Further adding to the misery on the beaches, contagious and deficiency diseases spread rapidly in the unsanitary and overcrowded camps. By the autumn of 1915, Hart estimates that up to the half of the 100,000 or so Allied forces on the peninsula were unfit for action. Conditions gradually worsened as the bad weather set in, with a three-day rainstorm in late November flooding trenches and washing unburied corpses into them. On 28th of November, the rain turned to snow as the temperature dropped well below freezing and high winds accelerated the wind chill factor. This combination wrought havoc on the forces on both sides, still equipped with their light summer kit and overexposed to hypothermia and frostbite. Moreover, for many of the Indian and Australian troops, it was the first time they had ever experienced snow and freezing conditions. The great snowstorm caused more than 200 deaths and over 5,000 cases of hypothermia at Suvla Bay alone, in addition to 3,000 at Anza Cove and 1,000 at Cape Hellas, although it did afford the opportunity for some British soldiers to shoot dead groups of Ottomans who left the safety of their trenches in a desperate attempt to collect firewood. The prospect of Allied evacuation was first rate on 11th of October 1915 and the decision to evacuate the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force was taken on 22nd of November 1915. Although Kitchener proposed that only the forces at Suvla Bay and Anzac Kov be pulled out, leaving the troops in place at Cape Hellas, the War Committee in London overruled him in favor of a complete withdrawal. 
Suvla Bay and Anza Cove were successfully evacuated on the night of 19th to 20th of December 1915, followed by Cape Hellas on 8th of January 1916. Remarkably, both evacuations occurred without losses in men, although considerable quantities of war material had to be left behind. The fact is that the Allied forces faced a formidable foe at Gallipoli. The Ottoman forces at Gallipoli performed with great combat effectiveness. In the words of the preeminent historian of the Ottoman army during the First World War, Edward Erickson, the Turks won the Gallipoli campaign because in many ways their army was more combat effective than the Allied armies in 1915. The Turks fielded a very well-trained, well-led and highly motivated army on the Gallipoli Peninsula that met the Australians, British and French man-to-man -man on every even terms. Moreover, the Ottoman command and control structures, high mobility in difficult terrain and control over central positions at the peninsula all presented operational advantages as did the close cooperation with the German units and advisors that were dispersed through the force. Importantly, it also reinvigorated the Ottoman war effort and coupled with the victories over the British and Indian forces in Mesopotamia at Sestifon in November 1915 and Kut al-Amara in April 1916 and the two victories at the first and second battles of Gaza in March and April 1917. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called The First World War in the Middle East by Christian Ulrichsen. In this matter, I highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject since the book contains even more detailed information not only in the case of the Gallipoli campaign but also discuss other topics such as the campaign in Mesopotamia. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can also visit my Instagram account or Facebook page called The Orient Express Middle East History Podcast, where I am constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes, so if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button or share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express History Podcast.